The concept for ePartrade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for ePartrade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing, and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade, there is no e-commerce. It's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all of that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of ePartrade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. ePartrade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. Good morning from California and uh, welcome to Race Industry Now, the technical and business webinar series from ePartrade presented to you by ARP and Performance Plus Global Logistics. I am Francisque Savinier, the founder and CEO of ePartrade, the global platform for the performance and racing industry. Today is episode 218 and we're going to be talking to Elgin Industries. With me this morning are Judy Kim, the co-founder of ePartrade, and our terrific host, Mr. Brad Gilly. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Good morning, Brad, Francis, and everyone that's joined us. And today should be pretty exciting. How many companies can say they've been operating for over 100 years? I'm impressed with that alone, and manufactured in the USA. I'm impressed. So this is like an engine builder's dream come true with all that Elgin Industries offers, OEM and performance. So this is going to be an exciting one. I'm excited to hear Scott, what he has to say about valve trains. So, Mr. Brad? Yeah, I'm excited too. This is going to be a lot of fun. I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Scott yesterday just talking about what we're going to have for the webinar today. And I think it's going to be a fun one. I think it's going to be another one where not only are we going to learn, but we're also going to find out about some opportunities, how maybe we can actually improve what we're doing in the industry as well. So it's going to be a, a great time. So thank you very much, Francis. Thank you very much, Judy. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started. And uh, joining us here as our panelist is Scott, uh, Scott Steyer, aftermarket sales with Elgin Industries. And again, we are talking about uh, valve train technology, uh, valve train info from the tech line of an OE supplier. And Scott, welcome. Really happy you're here today. And it's going to be a lot of fun talking about the LS engine. Brad, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm looking, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, we've enjoyed the ePartrade platform uh, for uh, well over a year now. Um, it seems like the last couple of, every month is a year, uh, it seems, since uh, everything started. But um, I've enjoyed exploring the ePartrade website and then having that platform to uh, showcase a lot of our product that people might not otherwise be aware of, uh, including stuff beyond what we're talking about today, the LS engine. Uh, but you'll find uh, a, a whole bantering of our uh, catalogs on our website that are uploaded in fresh, uh, most of them as of 2022. And um, yeah, we, uh, we, we've had a good time uh, working with something uh, outside of a non-traditional trade show. <laughs> Joining the 21st century and, uh, and attending uh, all sorts of new venues. So thank you for this opportunity. 
Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, it's wonderful. And it's wonderful that we found a great and uh, in a lot of cases, really a better way to do this and be able to connect with a lot of people at one time. Uh, we're going to have a presentation here. We're going to talk about a lot of the things that's going on with Elgin Industries, but we also definitely want your interaction as well. As we're going through the webinar here today, you are always more than welcome to ask a question. You can type it into the chat and we'll try and address as many of them as we can. But Scott, I know you wanted to start here today with a little bit of a PowerPoint presentation. So I'll let you go ahead and do that and then we'll just continue on with the conversation about what our topic is here today how about that that sounds great brad i am ready so let's go ahead and so again thank you uh good morning good afternoon good evening and uh Thank you again for having us today. Thank you, Francique, Judy, Zach, and Brad for hosting Elgin on the EPAR Trade uh, platform. My name is Scott Steyer. Um, I have been with Elgin for about five years, um, but I have been a parts guy for over 25 years. And I have been in over 40 years as a fourth generation in an automotive family. Uh, my great-grandfather started a trucking company in Chicago and hauled all of the the construction uh, equipment into what is now Midway Field. Um, one of my grandfathers uh, was very active with antique cars and special interest vehicles, and the other grandfather uh, raced stock cars, including at Soldiers Field, which is now uh, has been up until now home for the Chicago Bears. Uh, uh, and uh, so, stock cars, and we uh, have uh, my family has accumulated a small collection of cars, uh, and I have raced and restored uh, several of them. Uh, in my family building, we have a, a smattering of all sorts of stuff. We have muscle cars, British sports cars, we have a midget, we have a quarter midget that I learned to race in, um, all parked next to Concours level horseless carriage, hair carriages that we have restored. Um, a little bit of everything, and I'm actually interested in, uh, in a wide variety of vehicles, anything with wheels and engines uh, uh, I'm interested in. And uh, I became connected to Elgin through word of mouth uh, because Elgin was looking for someone that could field questions, both technical and simple, uh, for their over 100 years of products uh, of engine and chassis parts. And uh, my official duties here are technically I'm inside sales and technical support, but I also handle the digital marketing um, and a few other, whatever they ask me to, to help out with. So um, Elgin, uh, is a tier one OE supplier, a fully integrated manufacturer, and a master distributor for OE valve train. Uh, we are manufacturing engineers, not necessarily engine builders. The OE will design the engine, and then Elgin designs a part to meet their specifications. Uh, we also offer the same capabilities for the aftermarket and performance parts manufacturing. Uh, and this little collage here that we're looking at right now, uh, most of these vehicles have Elgin in the engine, uh, a few of them uh, just have Elgin on the side uh, through sponsorship. Um, our primary sponsors uh, these days, we use uh, a company called Contingency Connection for all of our sponsor needs. Uh, so that being said, um, Elgin has been owned and operated by the same family in the same town for over 100 years. Uh, three of our founders' grandchildren are here every day running the business. Their grandfather, Martin Skoke Sr., began working in the auto industry at the turn of the century, and by the early teens, he was managing a multi-brand dealer garage here in Elgin. Uh, after several years, he recognized the need for a, a higher quality parts to replace the OEs, and he rented a small shared shop, uh, this one right here, which is still standing. It's a carriage house um, behind a church, of all things, um, to develop uh, a higher quality piston pin. Uh, that was his first thing, was figuring out how to centerless grind and how to heat treat uh, piston pins in a way that could produce a product that was uh, longer lasting and higher quality than that which was out there uh, by the OEs. He figured it out, uh, and by 1919, he started business in a rented factory space in downtown Elgin, uh, and uh, it immediately took off. It was a huge success. Uh, people started buying all over the place. Um, we started introducing more part numbers, and uh, it, it was very successful, and, and so by 1927, uh, he, he had uh, outgrown the rented space and had already been, uh, had broken ground and started manufacturing a new facility uh, on the state highway, just barely on the west edge of town at the time. Uh, so it was filled with all of his own tooling. It was filled with all of his own uh, manufacturing processes and um, it was really taking off. So, we, and we started making parts for all different uh, types of engines uh, and manufacturers, uh, uh, including uh, one of our railroad customers still to this day, uh, was started in the Civil War. Uh, we're over 100 years old. They're, um, they're, they're approaching uh, 
getting close to 175. So um, kind of fun stuff. That's why I included this poster in this uh, presentation here. Here we're looking at a dated picture. This is, uh, this is a heat treat that was started um, and moved to the new facility, uh, the new 1927 facility. And we kind of, this was already an outdated picture when we took this during World War II. Uh, we had uh, already developed some new processes for heat treat um, because you know, we, were, we were very innovative over all the years. And um, the new factory was built as an efficient assembly line. Uh, and it was always kept up to be more or less state-of-the-art and the same continues through today. Uh, as technology progressed and new equipment developed, uh, we had uh, had expanded beyond this space that you're looking at right now. Um, and then the rest of the factory, of course, uh, was, was, was racked up in logical order. So all of our machinery was, was the, the assembly lines were, were, were made logical sense um, all the way through the, the, the product manufacturing to the end. Uh, packaging and distribution. Uh, the original factory was sandwiched between two rail lines. Uh, and uh, so we, we had raw material both coming in and uh, finished product shipping out uh, both by truck and rail, um, which is when we really kind of became the, the fully integrated uh, factory that we pride ourselves on being today. Um, so 1927, as I mentioned, uh, was the, uh, the year that we opened our, our first purpose-built factory. And it was also the year that we started a professional racing campaign. Uh, we started racing uh, in the Indy 500 in 1927, and we continued uh, up through 1954, racing a variety of platforms, including uh, some Miller cars. Um, we raced some Maseratis. We took the pole position in, I think, 41. Yes, 1941. I have it here. Uh, I'll show you later, maybe. Uh, we made a model of it. Uh, and then we, we, we uh, had some uh, spark issues, electrical issues that year, and so we only took fourth. Uh, and then after the war, uh, we hooked up with Andy Granatelli. Uh, we, we ran a couple of the Curtis, uh, off powered Curtises, um, the Roadsters, uh, up until 1954. Um, and Martin Sr. loved the racing. He was very passionate about racing. We, it was beyond just the, the Indy cars. We raced in stock cars. We raced in the Pan America, uh, the Carrera Pan Americana. Um, we took first in our class, but we, um, we had some factory experimental equipment on it. So we got uh, disqualified at the end, even though we won the time. Uh, even though it was going to become a production part, it wasn't a, officially a production part yet. Um, in this time, uh, in this the, the early 50s, uh, Martin Sr., pictured here and here and a few others, uh, was starting to hand the reins over to Martin Jr., the second generation. Uh, and Martin kind of started to steer away from racing, and he focused on the future and polishing the company's portfolio into the tier one OE supplier that we are today. Um, by the early 80s, we had broken ground on what is now the next edge of town on a brand new, uh, fully new clean slate facility. Uh, it's now up to 150,000 square feet. And uh, we supply to most of the OEs. Um, you can see a few names there uh, of our customers. And uh, we have continued to focus on our core capabilities plus new component processing such as camshaft heat treat. Um, we are the largest fully integrated uh, pushrod manufacturer in the world and the largest fully integrated stamped rocker on manufacturer in this half of the world. Uh, so we make a lot of pushrods. We make about a half a million pushrods a week. Um, and we offer that same OE technology that we make uh, that we're offering to the pushrods for the OEs. We're offering that exact same part uh, to the aftermarket. Uh, not necessarily direct. Uh, we do have a network, a hundred plus year old network of, of regional warehouses and distributors uh, not just in the U.S. or in North America, but around the world. Uh, any place that the that the that the Western domestic engine platforms have been shipped to, we are still supporting products in those regions. Uh, a little bit about quality. Um, as a tier one, uh, we we of course have all the IATFs and the ISOs, the quality environmental. Uh, Q1 is Ford. That one is different, and it's. Uh, it's interesting. It's a good one. And then, of course, uh, CQI 9 and 15, which are heat treat and welding for those that are interested in that stuff. In our building right now, we have about 150 years of combined experience on staff at a tier one level. Uh, and we also have uh, teams of engineers, including metallurgists. So your typical shop can usually check Rockwell hardness with a file or with a tester or something like that. But in our lab, what we need to do for the OEs is we, we, we take a parse, we encase it in carbonite like Han Solo, uh, we slice it like pastrami with a laser, etch it with acid, 
and then study it under an electron microscope to make sure that the heat treat has achieved the specific case depth. Uh, and then we can sample the hardness beyond nanomicrons with a diamond tip tester. Um, and that's on all outbound products. Uh, certain OEs will specify exactly, you know, how many per batch we need to do, uh, but we do it on everything. That's, that's something across the board uh, on a quality standpoint that we do. Uh, and we also check the inbound steel. So not only are we, are, do we have a lab for checking outbound, but, but on inbound too, which uh, scanning bars of steel that are 40 plus feet long uh, and trying to return them after they come off the trailer with the crane is a little bit difficult. So what we have, what we do is we have an XRF, that's an X-ray fluorescent gun. It kind of looks like a radar gun that a, that a, a police officer would have. Uh, it has an output, an LCD screen on the back of it. And uh, it scans, you point it at something and you scan it. But in this case, we're, we're pointing it at a bar of steel uh, and it scans the valence, uh, valence electrons and noble gases. And it gives us an output of all of the alloys that are in that steel. So what does that mean? That means that there's a signature in the steel of exactly what those alloys are. And, and, and the OEs have specified, this is what we need our raw material to be made out of. This is what we want. This is the, the conditions that we want the finished product made out of. Uh, we follow suit to that and we make sure that everything that is coming into the building uh, meets those specifications. So uh, not only do we just scan the ends of the bars, but we walk the deck of the length of the trailer and scan uh, spots of it to make sure it's consistent across the board. So. Uh, some of those quality signatures is what we can find out to make sure that a part that gets returned is our part, uh, because it might not have a part number on it, but it definitely has a signature of everything that's in it. And, um, and that's something that no, almost no one can check out there in the engine building world, unless you're a big production engine remanufacturer or an OE tier one like us. Uh, these are the required processes that we have to manufacture uh, to keep the parts the highest quality possible and Elgin adheres to those highest standards and apply them both to, as again I said, both to the original equipment parts and to the aftermarket performance parts. We even have our own internal auditing team as part of our quality department, uh, which is a major investment, uh, but it is key to high quality control. And uh, because of that, Elgin is, because of all of those Standards Elgin is regularly uh, recognized by our customers. Uh, so what does all that mean? That means, uh, of course, we have a warranty. There's a warranty on all of our parts. We have to have a warranty because your new car is under a warranty. Uh, but the same goes for aftermarket parts too, is that you don't need to worry about it. Uh, when you buy a part from Elgin, it's, it's going to have the exact same OE quality. It's going to meet or exceed OE standards, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, when we say OE equivalent, uh, it meets or exceeds OE standards, their specifications. Um, so you don't have to worry about it, I guess. And, um, and all these folks, they, uh, they, they, they like it too. Um, so those are some of our awards. Uh, real quick, our core competencies. Uh, again, we are a fully integrated factory. So um, we have captive processes that not a lot of other people can have, have under one roof. Not only do we do the machining, uh, but the heat treat and the advanced machines, which is uh, and then the laboratory and everything else. So our extensive heat treat, um, because that's one of our proprietary, uh, our, our founding core competencies that goes all the way back over a hundred years. Um, we do case hardening, neutral hardening, annealing, tempering, cryogenic, that's the freezing, the cryo stuff like Dr. Evil. Um, and then of course the traditional, uh, the, the regular heat treats, the carburizing, uh, carbonitriding and induction. Uh, so, uh, High quality means high assurance. And if it, what it really means is that my phone doesn't ring for material failures. Uh, my phone usually rings for information from a, that the people are trying to get from a competent OE manufacturer. Uh, when the phone does ring, uh, the failure calls are usually something that has to do with interference and tolerance related. For instance, a guy puts a big cam in his traditional flat tappet engine uh, and he calls up and he says that his rocker studs are breaking. Well, I usually ask him, well, did you remember to put long slot rockers on there? Or are you still using stock? Oh, I used the stock ones. I didn't know if I had to use long slot because there's so many people these days that are trying to buy stuff online and build it themselves rather than, uh, you know, talking to a machine shop, which is what I always recommend is eh, there might be a few more things that you need to do beyond what I know how to do because I'm not an engine builder. Though I did work in a machine shop and I understand the questions you're asking. Uh, there might be more stuff that you need to know about your build. Um, the one key thing that I do like to tell people across the board, no matter who it is, but especially with flat tappet engines is oil. Uh, and that's something that I can't be emphasized enough for older engines, especially the flat tappets. Um, 
or any engine whatsoever. Um, to quote Lake Speed uh, Junior, uh, you need to have the right oil in the right place at the right time in the right amount. And that's something that I preach regularly. Uh, I'm very passionate about antique cars and car all cars in general. Uh, and I, I really like to educate uh, people that were not aware of the oil changes of the need for zinc, ZDDP to be in the oil. Uh, is one of the things that I really like to share with as many people as possible because there's so many people that are out there that are not aware of it uh, that would normally benefit <laughs> from, from any of the knowledge that I can share, I'm glad to do uh, through my tech line. So I suppose that is it for the PowerPoint. Well, that is awesome. Uh, what a great history lesson, first of all, of Elgin Industries. And anytime you can throw in Star Wars references and Austin Powers references and, and Lake Speed Jr., who we're a big fan of here at EPAR Trade, uh, had a great uh, webinar last week uh, with Jeff Hammond hosting that as well. Uh, that's fantastic. And um, it, it really is amazing, uh, the whole history of the company and everything that you've done and the awards recognitions. And I love where you had talked about, you know, the way you test the heat treating as opposed to just a file. There's way more that goes into that, uh, you know, definitely from a, a technical standpoint. Now, uh, you mentioned you answer the phones and the tech line there at Elgin. So, you know, let's talk about the LS engine more specifically here and maybe some of the common questions that you get, Scott. Yeah, the, um, thank you. The LS engine, you know, it started in 1997, uh, which means the first ones are now officially an antique. <laughs> it's kind of hard <laughs> to believe that something that's, that we're considering to be cutting edge and, uh, and modern technology is, is already um, is already 25 years old, um, and I do get a lot of questions uh, about it uh, from engine builders, from end users, uh, mo mostly from uh, from folks that are that are still kind of just trying to learn and trying to feel out the entire uh, the, the platform as to whether it's viable. Of course, we know from our experience and from a lot of different racing teams and stuff like that that it's it is it has been uh, the king and will remain king uh, at least through. Uh, through the Gen 5 that we're looking at now. Then uh, Gen, Gen 3, 4, and 5 have, have all been excellent. Um, of course, we're looking at 6, which is a totally different uh, bird altogether. Um, but uh, because we are an OE and because we are uh, upfront and, and one of the, the, the premier technologies, I, we, we do work closely with the OEs to find out a lot of information uh, that I like to, feed, to, to give back to, to people that are asking questions. Um, feedback that we not just get from the OEs, but also from production engine remanufacturers. The people that are out there that have big warranties on uh, engines that are rebuilt, um, that are out there in the field working, uh, and that kind of feedback is what we can translate back into uh, performance and racing. Uh, most of the questions that we get are about uh, camshafts, you know, choosing the right one um, for the further application or choosing the right mating components. Um, a few questions that we get about the cams are related to the AFM, the active fuel management engines. Uh, those are now starting to become a dated technology too. So a lot of the, the, the people that are looking to either keep or get away from, uh, or just looking for more information on whether or not they should have that technology uh, is, a, is a good question. Um, but across the board, the LS engine, we get far less failures than traditional flat tappet cams. Uh, the, the lifters, the guides, the entire system of the valve train, uh, GM starting from a fresh slate for the Gen 3 uh, has just proven to be such a successful winner. Um, they have reliable reliability and cost issues uh, uh, that are that are met with being a traditional pushrod engine. Uh, it's compact. It's it's very easy to maintain. Uh, you know, to kind of look at it, uh, we make a lot of pushrods for Ford, of course. Uh, and now we're we're happy to see that they're returning a, a couple of their platforms back to a pushrod design too, because it it, it is very efficient. Um, so we do get a few questions about the stock stuff, but mostly it is about the performance. Most of the questions that I get are guys that are trying to build something uh, and they want advice. And again, I, I know a little bit about LS. Uh, I am budgeting and, and collecting parts to do an LS swap and LS build myself. Um, and like a lot of people, it's, it's a matter of choosing the right one and, uh, and trying to guide people. There's no one right answer. Uh, and I definitely don't try to give people a right answer. Uh, what I do try to, uh, to get them is to, to, to give them at least a, a way to find the answers, uh, to, to not necessarily give them the answer, but to, to, to direct them to where they can find the correct answer. And what that translates into is that when we get questions about uh, how to build an LS engine, how to, to, to put a performance engine together, um, it, it's, it's all application-based because my favorite line that I came up with and that I use almost daily now is that a four-door, four-by-four on 44s 
tires, a truck, uh, is going to need a totally different setup than an 1800 pound drag car, which is the truth. You put the same cam in both of those vehicles, it's going to need it, depending on the, the tire size, the rear axle ratio, uh, and the, the, the vehicle weight is going to tell you all sorts of things that you're going to need to know about. Uh, stall speed for the torque converter, uh, the fl flow, flows for everything, uh, a lot of different stuff that is beyond the scope of what we do. You know, here at Elgin, we are manufacturing engineers. Typically, the questions that that we're used to answering are more about how do we make it, what do we make it out of, what materials are compatible with it, not necessarily what parts are compatible with it, or how to build an engine. So, um, what I always recommend, what I like to recommend, and uh, uh, one of the uh, the premier prominent LS swap gurus uh, is uh, recommends to find a build that's within both your budget and your expectation and copy it. Because today we are in the age of information. There's so much stuff out there. I mean, just look at ePartrade itself. You can go there and you can find anything you need for any of the platforms that you're looking for. You, you search camshaft, you're gonna find cams. You, you search chassis, you're gonna find chassis. Um, just start doing your research up front and find out as many uh, uh, parts that, that, that are out there that are available and which ones uh, are going to meet your needs and meet your budget. And chances are, if you really start looking uh, to a place such as uh, other places, forums, uh, uh, Facebook groups, other, other forms of social media, is that there's someone out there that has already built uh, exactly the combination you're looking for, whether it's a, a Chevelle with a blower or it's a, a mud truck. Um, chances are there's already someone out there that, that has done that has built that so um i always say people like to share this this isn't 20 years ago this isn't when i worked in a machine shop 20 years ago eight seconds and a quarter mile meant a hundred thousand bucks 40 of it was in the engine 40 of it in the chest and the other 20 of it in the tow rig and the secrets to find out how to get it done today there's guys out there with our cam that are uh that we're going back a couple of years now it's already two years old but uh, Matt Happel and the Sloppy Mechanics took our camshaft, the Sloppy Stage 2, the E1840P, put it in a Fox Platform Mustang uh, in a 4.8 liter LS engine and ran in eight seconds in the quarter mile uh, for less than 8,000 bucks and it passed an uh, NHRA tech lane, which is key. That means it had to have a chute because it was going, you know, speeds in, uh, upward of expecting to be 150. Uh, you know, the, it had to have a full cage. Everything had to be, had to pass a tech lane so that when they can consistently when they were approaching eights, that they would be able to get into the eights uh, and not get kicked off the track, which is what a lot of times what happens when, when guys put a big cam in a light car. Uh, and we like that. Uh, we, we have a lot to thank for Mr. Happel uh, and, uh, and the rest of the sloppy mechanics crew uh, um, and a lot more questions. <laughs> All that does is mean more questions for me and more questions that I hope that I'm going to be able to answer today for those folks that are that have questions. So Yeah. No, and I like this, and I love the fact, too. I mean, the LS platform is just incredible, and you talked about all the great things about it, but also you talked about the fact that what applies here may not apply there, and just because something is really cool on this platform doesn't mean it's going to work on that platform, and that totally makes a lot of sense, and especially when we're talking about this. Uh, let's talk about some terminology as well here, Scott. Uh, AFM and DFM, can you explain the terms for people who might not be familiar with them? Yeah, um, a active fuel management uh, so Gen 3, the first LS engine, uh, that came out, uh, and that's a traditional small block. That's eight cylinders firing all the time. Uh, everything is going all the time, more or less. Uh, GM, uh, right around 07-ish, uh, when they were working on the Gen 4, they introduced a few new things. Uh, active fuel management, um, which uh, is kind of a displacement on demand. Um, and then that ties in, of course, with variable valve timing, too, which is something totally different. But the AFM it's, it itself is uh, the lifter. Here's a traditional, here's your traditional lifter. This is a uh, Elgin part number 2148, HL 2148. This is what most people call an LS7 lifter. This was introduced in the Vortec era uh, 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 of the uh, of the GM, you know, the, the I guess you could call it a Gen 2, um, but this is a traditional uh, LS roller lifter. This is the same one used today um, in the LS engines in the Gen 5 and the same one, of course, was also used in Harley Davidson, same lifter. Uh, but it's, you know, plunger, roller, nothing too exciting. Here's an AFM lifter, has a big spring on the end of it. Uh, the spring is controlled by oil. The spring is part of the, uh, a mechanism that is controlled by oil. Instead of having one feed port, it has two. Uh, one of these feed ports, uh, when the engine doesn't have much of a load on it, 
in order to gain additional fuel mileage, half of the lift, half of the lifters in the engine, half of the cylinders in the, the, the engine are turned off. So you go from an eight cylinder to a four cylinder. So you're gonna get much better fuel mileage uh, when you don't need all eight cylinders going down the road. Uh, so the lifter uh, collapses, um, it turns off, it, 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 the, the valves are no longer uh, opening. The camshaft is still telling, the, the lifter is still riding on the cam, but the cam uh, isn't activating the, the valves anymore. So um, uh, what that means is that you get better fuel mileage and uh, it, uh, it turns out to be a, uh, uh, an advantage for everyone. So, sorry, it's, this one is, uh, I went back to the, uh, to the factory and I, gather, I, had these, I gathered these this morning. So this one has, is leaking oil. Which is a little bit distracting. There, I apologize, but the um, yeah, the uh, yeah. So AFM half of the cylinders turn off. DFM Gen Five EcoTech Three direct injection engines, the newest ones within the last few years. All sixteen lifters have this spring on them, um, and it in, and instead of firing on four cylinders, um, it, it changes. The load, they, I've, I've read a couple of different places, either 125 times a millisecond, which doesn't make sense, or 80 times per second, that I would believe, unless the technology has progressed that much in the last 18 months, because that was the span of the articles. But it calculates the firing order, 17 different, 17 different firing orders, depending on the load of the engine. So what does that mean? That means when you have really no load on the engine, you're going down a hill, your engine can be firing on one cylinder. And it's not just like firing on the number three cylinder all the time, it's gonna be moving around. Uh, with, within the engine itself. Uh, and that technology is, is fascinating. Um, and that's, uh, that's cutting edge. That's, that's with gas prices. I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it could be a good thing. So. Yeah, it could be a great thing. That's incredible though. The technology involved in something like that and, uh, and all about Look, anytime, if we can save gas, but still have power when we need it, that's a, that's a, that's a really good and incredible thing. Uh, let's talk about high mileage. Let's talk about longevity when it comes to a lot of this and, and the durability of that, if you will, Scott. Well, <laughs> um, mechanically, there's very few issues that can, that, that can go wrong with this. The, um, the, the biggest issues uh, are actually electrical um, because the, this is uh, there. You can, of course, I, I guess I should back up um, on the mechanical side. Uh, of course, if you never change the oil in the vehicle, you're going to get sludge and sludge is going to be a problem no matter what. Uh, you're going to have sludge that's going to get into places that it doesn't, that it's going to not be able to get out of such as the inside of this lifter, the tolerances inside this lifter have been said to be finer than the microns on your oil filter. So if you get grit in your engine, it's going to find its way in here. And it's going to screw all sorts of stuff up, including uh, the VLOM, uh, the valve lifter oil manifold uh, that, that, that's in between the intake manifold that that, uh, that controls this. If you get sludge in there also, uh, you could have a failure. But we're not seeing as many failures with sludge as we are with electrical. Uh, the biggest issues that we're seeing are from the rust belt, uh, from higher mileage, uh, higher valued vehicles such as like a, an Escalade or a, a Denali um, that may have been driven daily for the past 15 years um, and is starting to rust and corrode and that corrosion is getting into the uh, the, the, the computers the, the, the body control the ECM and the PCM uh, and it'll start sending a ground fault interrupt so basically what that means is there's a split second ground somewhere within your vehicle's electrical system and that ground is telling this lifter to turn on or off at the wrong point in the uh, valve train cycle, and what that does is um, this has a this is a fuse. This is a this is a mechanical fuse for an electrical issue. And uh, if this tells it if it tells itself to turn on during the wrong cycle, it will crush this spring. This spring up here will crush, and it will remain crushed. There's a locking mechanism in here inside the lifter body that will two pins will snap out. They only do it once. Um, once, once it snaps, it, the fuse is blown and it needs to be replaced. And a lot of times people will, they'll have that issue. You know, the, the engine will fail. Um, the engine won't necessarily fail. I should take that back. When the spring collapses, it prevents the valves from touching the pistons, which would be catastrophic failure for the entire engine. Um, so this fuse, um, pops and then the engine stops more or less because it's now it's only running on call it four cylinders. It might be one, it might be all of them. It could be, you know, but, uh, when that stops, uh, when, when that does compress, uh, when that does stop, then uh, people will just replace the lifter 
and then they'll drive it a couple, you know, maybe a hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles, and it'll happen again. And then they'll blame the part. Well, it's not the part. The part is a mechanical fuse for an electrical issue. To find that electrical issue can be very costly, very costly because it's very time consuming. So to try to find a, a, a ground, you know, where are you losing this ground in the computer? You could throw thousands of dollars at computers and still not find it because it could be somewhere in the harness. Um, so that is, so a lot of people are deleting these. They're going with AFM delete kits, which is of course the thing that everyone does on the performance side. If you buy a, a, a Gen 4 engine and you're going to put it in a performance vehicle, you're going to delete this. You don't want this. You want all eight cylinders all the time, uh, which is when people usually switch to a good LS7 lifter. Uh, and that's what this is. This is their, their traditional LS7 lifter. So uh, yeah, high mileage, we don't know yet, <laughs> especially with the newest ones that have all 16 cylinders. Uh, or all 16 lifters all have that spring on them. Uh, we don't know what the future holds for that yet. Um, we're just finding out now what the, the Gen 4s are starting to, to react to. Wow. Hey, I, I, I've seen quite a few people uh, do LS rebuilds and effectively delete those just for that very reason that you just mentioned when you go watch any numerous amount of YouTube videos and everything like that. Uh, do the issues also affect standard non-AFM DFM lifters? No. Um... Yes and no. Uh, the the sludge is always going to be an issue. Um, you, you of course you want to make sure that uh, that that you that you clean the engine completely. Um, it's not a bad idea to replace the lifters. One thing that is shared between both the uh, deactivization lifter and the standard lifter is this. This is a lifter guide. This is what keeps your roller lifter square on the camshaft is, is all four of your lifters, two pairs, two bores are gonna be in here um, and it's gonna keep it square. This, if you can hear that, this is plastic. That's all that this is. This is not metal. This is plastic that's holding your lifters square. Um, in the parking lot is a quarter million mile Tahoe that, uh, that I drive 70 miles a day. Um, and I'm amazed that this has held the lifters square for a quarter million miles. Um, because it's plastic and it will fatigue. And we have found that to fatigue. This is the biggest problem with, with across the board, whether it's AFM or non-AFM, uh, is that these, uh, these plastic guides will fatigue over time. And when, that, when it fatigues, um, it's not just going to break. Um, it'll, the lifter will turn sideways in the bore. And now you have a roller lifter riding sideways on a round cam. And that's going to last well, if you're at 7,000 RPM, it could be a millisecond before you wipe the cam. Uh, if it's in a, a, you know, like a towing vehicle, which is a lot of times what we see it in, uh, you know, high mileage, uh, cross-country construction or whatever they do, um, it'll eat it away and you'll hear a noise for, a, you know, maybe a minute as it gets worse and worse and worse before it completely fails. So um, sometimes when, when, when you do have higher mileage on these lifters, um, on the whole valve train, on a weak oil pump, a tired oil pump, I guess I should say, um, you might want to, uh, uh, a stock length push rod will be fine, but you might want to go with a, a slightly longer one, an 050 longer push rod. Uh, but that might be a different conversation altogether, to be honest. Mm -hmm. so. Well, good. If, uh, if you have a question, by the way, you're more than welcome to type it into the chat and ask it, and we'll get to those. But this is really fascinating conversation. And when you bring out that guide, every time I see one of those, I always think it was part of the packaging that the lifters were shipped in. But you know, obviously it's not uh, with that, but it does emphasize uh, the importance of using high quality OE components, um, either in a stock or performance LS application. Uh, are the rockers the only LE parts that are compatible with the performance LE build or LS build? Sorry. Um, no, uh, there's a lot of stuff. Um, push rods in general. Um, a good push rod uh, will last for a very long time. It could even... Uh, go through a rocker such as this one here um the rods themselves we of course make the stock push rod which the stock length push rod will be fine um stock stock bone stock push rods um have hit 7,000 rpm with no deflection whatsoever with a stock rocker a stock bodied rocker um an oe bodied rocker is uh, is more than capable of handling uh uh Pressures in excess of 300 uh, pounds uh, for the spring, um, and then the push ride can as well. Um, but it's once you start uh, switching from a, so this is your stock rocker, stock bodied rocker. Uh, this is a LS3 rocker. You can see that there's a slight offset in it. Um, and then when you get really extensive, then you go to a roller 
tip rocker. Um, when you go to roller tip rockers, uh, you can't use a stock push rod anymore because you need to run a guide plate. So we offer the same push rod, carbon nitride, hardened, exact same push rod as, as what you're going to find in the LS1. Uh, still, you know, the thicker, the slightly thicker wall because uh, uh, the GM specifies, I think it's like an 080 or something like that. Um, beyond that, once you go to the, uh, the um, beyond the stock bodied rocker, uh, and you go on, you're, you're, you're intentionally going beyond 7,000 RPM on a regular basis, whether it be in a short track application or drag racing or, or something where you're going to be bouncing off the rev limiter constantly. Uh, then we go with the one piece thick wall push rod. Uh, this is, um, this is the one that's used around the world. We sell these around the world. All the, the high-end builders are all using this one. Um, there are builders out there that say, well, you can get away with, you know, something, uh, a lesser wall. This is like a one, we call it a 110. It's 110, 106, somewhere there. Uh, with 210 radius turned ends, it's chrome molly, it's one piece, it's hardened, it's uh, uh, it's um, centerless ground. So it's not, this is one piece um, and this will never self-destruct. Uh, this is the one that everyone is using. This is the one that we get the most feedback on. These look like they're the same length, but we offer these in uh, 025 different lengths. Um, so a 7400 is the most common for an LS. You can go up or down in 025 increments uh, because there's all different <laughs> applications out there. If you're going to deck the block or mill the heads, um, you're going to change the head gasket thickness. All those different things are going to require a different push rod length. And uh, that's when you want to make sure that you have uh, the highest quality one possible. And that's the one that, that, uh, that we manufacture, distribute um, under a variety of different lengths uh, and varieties um, for everyone to use. Um, the other ones that we use that are stock uh, head bolts, uh, stock head bolts. Um, it is torque to yield. It is bone stock. Uh, springs, uh, you want to, we do offer a variety of beehive springs in various pressures. Um, valve springs for, um, for performance applications. Um, and then the cams themselves, uh, which are ground to the, we cut these out of a four inch by four inch by 12 foot long stick of billet bar stock. It's the same thing that an OE cam is cut out of. It's the same base circle. Again, the stock push rod length will work on a stock on, on one of these cams. Uh, the most popular one, the one that uh, Matt Happel has made popular, the Sloppy Stage 2. This is a uh, uh, very popular cam. It's Whether it's naturally aspirated, turbo, supercharged, nitrous, this cam responds to everything. Uh, we thank him very kindly for making this very popular because he found out we're the ones that make it. Um, and then the phone started to ring off the hook. And that's when I became involved with LS engines um, on the aftermarket side. But on the... Um, on the kind of a gray area as to aftermarket, GM performance. Uh, GM performance is technically aftermarket. It's not OE. Um, all of the LSX grinds, the LSX 376, the 454, the 454R, um, those are all Elgin grinds too. Um, so if you need them, um, the numbers are like E1250P, E1251, all the way up through 1260. Um, that information is available free to download off of ePartrade. Um, we have our LS catalog up there that includes all the specifications and the part numbers for these cams and what the what they're commonly known as. Uh, and that's what this is. <laughs> and that's what uh, that, that's what we enjoy doing most is uh, is offering these these um, OE equivalent grinds uh, to the aftermarket, you know, and you don't have to pay the same price as what it would come from in a GM performance box, even though you're getting um, the same spec cam, the same material. Uh, they're all three bolt cams, typical LS1. If you want to put it in a, a single bolt uh, engine block, you just got to use the newer timing set with uh, the reluctor wheel up front, um, but it'll go in there. Um, and we really enjoy those, these cams. And then one more. We haven't told a lot of people about this. The production engineering manufacturers have had them out in the field for a few years now. Gaskets. Um, we answered the call. We had a, our, our, as I said, you know, by volume, the production engineering manufacturers, uh, they they use a lot of parts. <laughs> you know, and then there's warehouses out there that also use a lot of parts. And um, we've had uh, calls from both that they weren't able to get uh, gaskets, and we have access to gaskets. And so here they are. So this is an LS gasket set. Um, we offer it in both the uh, uh, the non-AFM and the AFM um, as a, uh, there's, there's two different top end kits and then they share the same bottom end kit because the bottom end is the same on both ones with the oil pan. But, um, 
if you're interested in any of this stuff, contact us through ePartrade, um, and we'll be glad to send you more information on it. But yes, we do have gaskets, not just for LS, but for a variety of other applications, older stuff, you know, small block, big block, Chevy, Ford, that kind of stuff. So um, that might be about it for parts, for, for LS parts, I suppose. There is other stuff, but um, were there, did any questions come in, Brad? Is there anything I can ask answer about all that stuff? I, I don't see any in the chat right now. Uh, but but one thing that you said that um, it, it just, and I love the way you presented this, and I love the way you said this, where you were talking about the push rods and that, you know, basically someone says, well, you can get by with. Uh, look, I get maybe you don't always need to overbuild something or you don't need to have too much in something, and people are on budgets. But to me, whenever you hear that phrase, well, you could probably get by with, it, it should always have like follow-up questions as to the why and all of that. But, uh, you know, I like the way you describe it, that that you don't need to get by with this. This is it. So that makes a lot of sense. We make a lot of them. Like I said, half a million push rods a week. Thereabouts, it ranges between right under five to over six. Um, a lot of OE, of course, OEs eat up a lot of that, but um, aftermarket eats up a whole heck of a lot too. And that's my department. I'm not in the OE, I'm in the aftermarket sales. And um, I've got a lot of customers that are really proud that they are putting Elgin, uh, that they're sourcing a lot of their valve train from Elgin, and especially those push rods, because that's what we're most well known for. You know, people will bring us something and they'll say, well, you know, I really needed to do this. And we'll, we'll say, well, Here's your options. It's in the catalog. We have all these different series of, of, of push rods, uh, you know, from from ones that will refer street reuse that will just do all the way to the ones that the engine builders that are actually racing that are racing on TV <laughs> that uh, that they don't need it to fail on TV. Uh, that those guys they they come to us, um, not necessarily directly. You know, a lot of that goes through a distributor um, because they have it on the shelf. Um, we just crank out parts. You know, like I said, they always will bring us a part. They'll set it on the table and they'll say, we need a thousand a month, a thousand a week, a thousand a day, whatever it's got to be. They send us empty totes. We send them back at the end of the day full. Um, that's what, that's largely how we keep our machines busy. So it's, a, I'm thoroughly impressed, Scott. At, at first of all, not just your knowledge of, um, of the parts and the compatibility as you were talking about, um, but also the specific products that you guys offer at Elgin Industries. Um, and and th there's a great reason why you're the one answering the tech line uh, quite often as well. But um, as you said, uh, the Elgin Industries page on ePartrade, uh, I guess probably the best source to go, depending on where you're looking, if you need to go to a distributor or talk to you guys directly and all of that. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I uh, the emails come straight through to um, to a group of us uh, that answer questions. So we might, depending on what the question is, um, a different person might respond. But our, our EPAR trade contact, when you contact us through there, um, it goes to a, a special email address that we set up that includes a group of us um, here on the Elgin side uh, so that we can best answer your question, whether it be a manufacturing question, engineering, or uh, or distribution, which would be me <laughs> sales glad to sell anything i can so <laughs> well and thank you for one... having us in may with our indie stuff i went ahead and i switched out some of my pictures i went down to our hall of fame down on the executive side and i stole some of these pictures this one right here is a panorama that as of a few years ago Indy would love to have a copy of but it's sealed into the glass uh they tried taking it out the museum came here and tried taking it out to scan it and they can't get it out. So they scanned it through the glass and they were not able to get a, a good picture of it. But that's a panorama from our first Indy of 1927. Uh, this is us when we took pole position first, well, when we were number one uh, at the pole in 1941. And then uh, the finned car, the one that had the fin on it in like the mid thirties, we, we raced that one year. It was a terrible failure. It was very slow because that wind, that wing slowed it down. But uh um, and then a few other ones up there, but I switched them out because Francine noticed that I had our first IndyCar in 1927 and our last one in 1954. I had them up on in my office in here. So I had to grab I, a few. I wouldn't give those back. I would not give <laughs> those that? back. Just keep them. Oh, up. it's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> I asked for some and they said, well, we still have, uh, we still, some of us still go to Indy once in a while. And I, um, I stopped at the museum and I had them print off the first and the last one for myself. Uh, because they had them on hand there so that I could have some in my office too. But yeah, they, some of the ones that we have, there's, they're not out there. They're, they're only, they're still in the family. Like I said, we're in third generation. Um, so they still have a lot of the original pictures. So yeah, I wish yeah. we still had the car. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, you know, you had so, such a product range to talk about. We want to make sure you're included in race industry week at the end of the year. 
We okay. would invite you back. Yes, absolutely. That's yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we'd be glad to. Yeah, yeah I mean, we can, um, we can do that. Yeah, I'd love to. Please yeah. let me know. Whatever we got to do. I would love to. I'd be honored. I enjoy watching these. I've watched several of these. I mean, I watch them when I can. I put them on in the background. It's it's interesting, you know, all the different options that you have out there to get information. And I like ePartrade because you guys are very global oriented and there's lots of different topics. You know, it's not just just parts because I'm not an engineer. And when the parts stuff goes by, I don't understand it. But but hearing firsthand accounts from people that are involved. Uh, I like those stories. I, I thoroughly enjoy listening to that. I will admit the uh, the Linda Vaughn one uh, really early on. I think that was in the first week or the very first one. Um, I like listening to her because my my father has met her a couple of times. Uh, he, we have a Hearst car. We have a Hearst Rambler Scrambler, and, and she was Miss Hearst. Um, and so I don't know. There's a little bit of a connection there. So I really thoroughly enjoyed listening to that first one that uh, that Linda did. So yeah, I hope so. I hope it was this platform. I thought it was. I hope it was. She's been on both race industry weeks, and she comes over here to my computer to get on, and uh, so it's been fun to have her on. She's just oh, very cool. She has stories, good stories. Yes, and I love those stories. Yes, such a great. Well, we're still in the prime of of the auto industry. A lot of people like to say that her era was the prime, but I think we're in it now. I really think that we're, we're now we're in the, the golden age of the automobile is right now we're witnessing it we're all involved and thank you for, in, for including Elgin in this involvement we we really appreciate this opportunity uh, to be part of this. Well, thank thanks you, for being part of ePartrade Scott. Th thank you very much Scott. Thank you very much for your kind words and we'll have you back. So this webinar has been recorded. It will be posted later on on the ePartrade platform our YouTube channel and different social channels. Thank you very much for watching today. We will be back next Wednesday and we're going to be talking shop tools with shop monkeys. So that's going to be very interesting. Thank you very much to be with us today and let's go racing. Bye-bye. Registering on ePartrade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.